Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello! Welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. You've managed to find the greatest podcast in the history of the universe. And I'm very happy that you've done that. This is where we uncover some of the secrets lurking around the galaxy. Now, my name's Dan. This week, we'll have a look at some devastating storms with surging winds. And we'll find out how they start. Also, you can hear about another quest to get some moon rock. And we've got your questions this week, as always. Uh, They're on signals, on the sky, and on satellites, too. That's coming up. First, let's take a trip, get a lesson, back to school, at the smartest one outside of the solar system. This is Deep Space High. Deep Space High. Space for all. Just imagine us lot in the future. I wonder where we'll all be and what we'll be doing. Writing about missions, planning the trajectories of launches, studying the landscapes of new planets, recording the music of Mars. Quark, I bet you end up being a sports scientist running training sessions for astronauts. I just wish I knew what I wanted to do. I love it here at Deep Space High, but I don't really have a favourite lesson. Not all jobs are things you learn at school. Some are fields of study that you might only find out about when you're older. Come on, let's go on a whistle-stop tour of some of them. Computer sim, let's show them. Um, we're in a courtroom. That's right, my lord. <clears throat> uh, you could be a space lawyer, interpreting laws to help everyone agree how we should behave in space. Or helping to protect planets from human contamination. Or maybe deciding what the rules are when rescuing stranded astronauts. Hey, oh, that looks expensive. The test rocket crashed. Uh, crashing rockets isn't a job I'd want. Launching rockets into space is risky and expensive. People called space insurers look at what the risks are and provide financial cover in case anything goes wrong. It can be quite exciting. You might have to visit the factory where the space vehicle is being built and also attend its launch. Right, what's next? Okay, zip your coats up, it's gonna get chilly. Forecasting the weather is of vital importance to spacecraft launches. If it's too stormy or the clouds are too thick, the rocket could be at risk. You could work as a meteorologist, Sam, using data from satellite radar and weather stations to make forecasts. As long as I could do it indoors. That doesn't surprise me. Okay, anyone hungry? Whoa! These are the packets of food astronauts take into space. Can we try them? Go ahead. Not bad. Tastes like chocolate milkshake. Many, many people and jobs are behind those little packets. Nutritionists work to ensure astronauts are getting the vitamins and minerals they need. Chefs will develop recipes that taste good in space. Food scientists will come up with ways to make the packets last for a long time. And designers will make packaging light and easy to use with no crumbs. Can I have another one? No time. 
And if you study medicine when you're older, there's a wealth of jobs in space for you. Everything behaves differently in space, whether plant life or animal life, including the human body. Space medics study the differences to help experiments run smoothly and to keep everyone in space in good health. Computer, back to class. Predicting weather sounds cool, but I like food. It would be cool to... Ah, I just don't know. It doesn't really matter if you don't know for sure. You've plenty of time to think about it. And things change every year. There'll be jobs in space in the future that we can't even imagine right now. Not least as space tourism is developing. You could be an air steward on a space plane, sell space holidays, or run a theme park on theatre. <laughs> now that sounds cool. Finally. And that means we've reached the final lesson. Well done, everyone. Class dismissed. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. Question time on the show, then. I love this part. It's when you have a science problem, you send me to do some science digging so I can get the science answer. Uh, first up is from Rory with a U and an A and an I. Uh, I met Rory at the Fun Kids Science Weekly live show that we did uh, last week. Uh, if you didn't manage to make it, don't worry. Hopefully we'll have more in the future. You did miss a good one, though. What did we do? We had a um, proper scientist uh, who did some experiments, a little bit of fire in there. We had gas. We had things that were expanding. We learned all of our air. Also, we had a meteorite there. 4.5 billion years old, this meteorite. Actual space rock that we passed around and we all had a look at. Uh, and we had a space expert as well who was there to answer your questions. I think we had fun. Thank you so much if you managed to go. Uh, Rory did that. And he wants to know, how fast does the brain send signals? I've had some time to research this, Rory. Thanks for firing it over to me. Now, the average human brain has about 86 billion nerve cells. They're called neurons. They are the building blocks of your brain. They talk to each other and they make you think by sending signals to each other, which rustle along tiny fibres, uh, a bit like electric wires carry electricity and power so you can play. Uh, these carry information. Uh, that, that's how you know if you're tired or if you're in pain or exhausted. Now, they travel at different speeds. The ones that tell your muscles what to do travel at around 119 metres a second. Uh, the pain signals, they travel slower at 0.61 metres a second. So it takes you a little while to know if you're in pain. Now, the fastest one in your body, it goes up your spine. It sends signal at 268 miles an hour. Rory, thank you for the question. And thanks for coming to the show. I'll see you soon. Uh, also, this one is from Stella, who's in Ireland, who wants to know why the sky is blue. Now, the sky, Stella, is full of air. And that air is made up of loads of different elements. Uh, one of them is nitrogen. In fact, most of them is the gas nitrogen. The molecules fill the air. Now, light from the sun is made of all different colours. They're all in there. And when they hit the air in our atmosphere, they get broken apart by everything that's up in the sky. They scatter. And because a lot of the air is nitrogen it scatters more of the blue light than the others. Now, that blue light gets scattered, it gets refracted uh, from some of those nitrogen molecules, and then it flies all over the place. It bounces around the sky and enters our eyes, which makes the sky look blue. 
Uh, and lastly, thank you for that, Stella. This is from Louise, who's in Scotland, who wants to know, how do satellites not block each other's path in the sky? Now, mainly because there's a lot of space in space. There's over 20,000 miles of orbit that those satellites can stay in and stay out of each other's way. And satellites aren't humongous. They're big, but they're not really bigger than a football pitch, which is massive when it's down on the ground, but when it's floating in the sky in over 20,000 miles of space up there, it's got a lot of spare place to kind of hover around in and steer clear. And remember, they're travelling really fast and they're on the same path sometimes, which means they can't really run into each other because they're very smartly positioned in the sky, so they're not really close to each other up there. Thank you for the question, Louise. If you've got something science-y for the show next week, a question that you want answered, leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, recently on the show, we've been looking at ways to help the uh, the plastic crisis and be creative with what we've got, what we've made, and to try and upcycle plastic to make something else. Well, it turns out that, well, a bacteria... A bacteria that usually you think would do you harm, it can be quite useful here. Now, Joanna Sadler is from the University of Edinburgh. She joins us now. Hey, Joe. Hello. So this is all about something called E. coli. Uh, before we get into how it can be used with plastic, can you just tell us a little bit about what E. coli does generally with bacteria? Because when we hear about it, we don't always think it's that useful to us. That's right. I mean, I think a lot of us might have heard of E. coli because we're aware that that's present in our, um, it can be present in intestines. It can also make us feel quite unwell if we get food poisoning. But actually, E. coli is, is, is a very large group of microorganisms and there's lots and lots of different types of E. coli. And some of those E. coli can actually be really, really useful to scientists. In particular, we can program E. coli to do all sorts of um, useful things. So, for example, we can program it to make particular chemicals which are really useful. And actually, these types of E. coli that we use for science are not harmful at all. Um, and they've been specially engineered to not be at all dangerous. So before we get into what this is done, you said you, you program E. coli. How do you how do you tell like a bacteria what to do? You basically have to understand how that bacteria um, uses genetic code. So this thing called DNA, which basically programs the cell and gives it lots of instructions on how to work. And once you understand that, you can really start to reprogram it to, to do whatever you want, really, which is, which is why science is so exciting. And um, so what we can do is we could introduce new little bits of this code into the E. coli, which give it specific instructions and tell it to make a particular protein that we're interested in, for example. So you've got the E. coli, this bacteria that you've, uh, you've engineered, that you've designed and developed to do something different. You've got the plastic. When did you realize that maybe putting those things together uh, could help the, uh, the, the plastic crisis in some way? Well, I started this off by looking at the structure of the plastic that I was interested in, in doing something with. So I was really interested in PET, which is the stuff that plastic bottles are made out of. Um, so I'm a, I have a background in chemistry. So I looked at the molecular structure of the PET plastic. And I thought, well, if we break this down into little chunks, into really, really small chemicals, what can we do with those chemicals? And so I used my knowledge of chemistry and of what enzymes can do to come up with this idea of making vanillin from plastic. 
Um, and that's just a series of chemical reactions which are catalyzed by proteins or enzymes, uh, which would take us all the way through from the, the product that you get from breaking down the plastic all the way through to the vanilla flavoring. So this is what you found, this vanillin. Just tell us more about what it is and, and how it is useful to us, because it's really important if we're upcycling plastic, what we make actually serves a purpose and it doesn't perhaps just smell nice. Just tell us a bit more about that. Absolutely. So vanillin is a really interesting molecule. You might um, be familiar with it because it's it's uh, the primary molecule or compound responsible for that really nice sweet smell of vanilla flavoring, which is the stuff that you might put in your cake or in your ice cream or what have you. Um, but actually, mo- yeah, most of that flavoring is made up of one particular molecule called vanillin. Um, and it's so it, it's used in all sorts of things, not just food flavorings, but also fragrances. Um, and it's also used as a really important industrial chemical as well for lots of other industrial processes. Um, and so there's a huge, huge demand for this particular chemical. And this demand cannot be met just by extracting it from, from nature, from the vanilla plant where it's found um, in nature. Um, so as scientists, we really have to meet this demand by making it through other means. And at the moment, we can make it using chemical processes um, from oil-derived starting materials. But we really need more sustainable ways to do that. And so I thought, well, if we can make this really important molecule from a waste material, i.e. plastic, then we'd be really, um, uh, we, we'd be really addressing two um, issues in one go. Now, does this open the door for using bacteria to really make anything from plastic? Or does these these pet plastics that you, you said, are they limited to what they can create? You know, is it vanillin? Is it maybe a few more things? Or is it almost endless with what you can get from plastic using the C. coli or different bacteria? So at the moment, we're limited for a few reasons. Um, pet is a really nice uh, plastic to start with. Because of the structure of pet, it, it's really set up quite nicely to do some quite straightforward chemistry to get through to useful molecules, a bit like like vanillin or some other similar molecules. There is a lot more scope beyond that to make lots of other different types of chemicals. Um, But the moment we have a really big challenge in actually breaking down the the plastic in the first place so that we can feed it to the E. coli so that we can make other things. So if you look at other plastic types like um, polyethylene, so the stuff that plastic bags are made out of, um, or PVC, or many, many other types of plastic. These are actually a lot more challenging to break down into those small, small molecules. Um, and so it's much harder than to, to use um, kind of a well-understood uh, mix of breakdown products and feed those to your bacteria. So we've got a lot of challenges, I think, to overcome first. But I think once we are at a point where we can convert plastic into microbial biomass, or just more cells, basically, uh, we can then we know we can program these these E. coli to do all sorts of really useful things. Um, so there's a huge amount of potential. I just don't think we're there quite yet. How do you feed E. coli? Is it as simple as putting little bits of the plastic in the petri dish and watching them gobble it up? Is there something smarter going on? <laughs> it you, so in E. coli, um, the way that we did it was actually to add an enzyme mixture to the plastic first. So this was um, enzyme which we'd taken out after we'd made it in the E. coli um, and just add that enzyme mixture to the plastic. 
wait for that to break it down into these little little small molecules and then feed that mixture to the E. coli, which we'd engineered to make the vanilla. But there are other microorganisms, not E. coli, which naturally actually secrete or export um, plastic degrading enzymes so that they can, they basically will stick to the surface of plastic and then uh, break down, secrete these enzymes, break down the plastic and then literally eat the, the small molecules that are produced as a result of this. And this doesn't, as I said, this doesn't happen naturally in E. coli. But what we can do is take some of those tools that other microorganisms use and put them in E. coli so E. coli might behave a little bit more like those other secreting microorganisms. So there's a lot going on. It's a big, it's a big idea. Let, let me break it down. The headline of this is, Joe, you've taken plastic, you've fed it to this bacteria, E. coli, and out of it, you've made... Uh, this vanillin, which can flavor uh, vanilla cakes and vanilla ice creams and vanilla coffees for years to come. That's what's going on. That's, that's basically it. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the short and long and short of it. Um, I would say that this is a really early stage of this research. And what we're going to do now is make the whole thing way more efficient so we can start to really scale it up and really make it work in the real world. Oh, I'm, I love like upcycling and upcycling plastics and really creative ways to get us out of this uh, this situation uh, is is what we're all about. So Joe Joanna Sadler, thank you so much for coming on the uh, on the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thanks very much for having me. For this week's Dangerous Dan, because they've been in the news quite a bit recently, uh, maybe you've even been affected by one of them where you live. I thought we'd learn all about hurricanes. A hurricane is a large swirling storm. They can make winds of over 70 miles an hour, which is quicker than a cheetah, the fastest animal on land. Now, here in the UK, we call them hurricanes. But where you live, you might call them tropical storms or cyclones or typhoons. They start over the ocean in hot parts of the world called the tropics. Now, they get made because of the really simple science rule that uh, hot air rises. So around warm parts of the ocean... Near the top of the water's surface, the air, it heats up, it gets moist, and because it's warm, it rises. Now that makes the cooler air above it sink, but then it goes round again, because when that cooler air sinks down to the ocean, it gets warm and it rises, which makes the cooler air above sink, gets down to the ocean, gets warm, and then it rises again. This goes on and on and on and on, and this swell makes storm clouds form. And then, as the Earth spins on its axis, the clouds begin to rotate, and they join together, making one mega storm cloud. Now, there is calm in the middle. You might have heard of it. It's called the eye of the storm. Right in the centre of these huge swirling winds and rain and thunder, uh, it's all quiet. Now, hurricanes do come around quite often, but when they hit land, as you might have seen right now in America, they can be extremely dangerous and they can cause some devastating damage. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! (laughs) 
We're travelling back through time now to meet some brutal beasts of the past. This is Age of the Dinosaurs. Imagine going back in time, not 100 years or 1,000 years, but millions of years. To the Age of the Dinosaur. Welcome to the Cretaceous period, which existed between 65 and 144 million years ago. The world by this point was home to a wider variety of environments and species than ever before, and different species behaved in different ways, some preferring to live on their own, others liking the company of the herd. Uh-oh, let's hide. We've got company. Don't panic. It's a herd of iguanodons. They're plant eaters and more interested in the vegetation around here. They have to be, as they need to consume the equivalent of 300 bananas every day. Iguanodon fossils have been found all over the world, which means they were a common sight in Cretaceous times. They reached up to 11 metres in length and were experts at stripping greenery and fruits off plants. Cool. Did you see? It looks like they have hands. That's true. Iguanodons could stand on their rear legs and use their hands to grasp vegetation, a task made easier by their flexible fifth finger. They're on the move again. There they go. Bye. I like them. Fossils of many iguanodons have been found jumbled together in one place, which tells us that they moved in a herd with the adults likely to band together to protect the young from predators. But not all dinosaurs behaved this way. Yes, look at that poor thing over there. Maybe he's lonely. Don't worry, that's a Pinacosaurus, with plates of armour all over his back and an enormous club on the end of his tail. He can look after himself. That tail is perfect for swinging at anyone who thinks he'd make a tasty dinner. Armoured dinosaurs such as Pinacosaurus are known as ankylosaurs, meaning armoured dinosaurs. They were plant eaters too, like the iguanodontians. But in fossil finds, there is usually just one of them, so they probably lived and died alone. Look, another herd, and these seem in a hurry. Quick, duck and hide. It's a pack of velociraptors. These sneaky hunters are carnivores and can bring down animals much larger than us. Not only do they have razor-sharp teeth, deadly curved claws and an ability to run fast, they also have very large brains. They were believed to be intelligent enough to hunt together when necessary, outwitting their prey to tear it to pieces. That Pinacosaurus is flexing his tail ready. Quick, let's run! Paleontology, pick. Fossils have been part of the Earth for millions of years, and studying them is something paleontologists are experts at. Once larger rocks in an area have been cleared away, hammers, chisels and picks are used to tap at the Earth around the fossil to loosen it further. These pieces of rock and earth are called the matrix. Then a series of brushes from stiff to soft are used for delicate work. 
If the fossil needs to be moved, it's often wrapped in a plaster cast to keep it safe, just like the sort you would get if you broke your leg. The fine work of removing the remaining rock from the fossil then goes on back at the museum's laboratory. It's time for this week's Science in the News. NASA's Perseverance rover on Mars has made another stab at getting a Martian rock sample. You might remember the last one. We spoke about this a week or so ago. It got crumpled to dust and it vanished. It disappeared. The rover is due to get more than 20 different rock samples that will be taken home in the next few years. And we can use those to see if there have ever been any signs of life. Also, one in three tree species across the world face extinction. Everything from oak trees to magnolias are at risk. There are 60,000 tree species on the planet. Almost 20,000 of them are at risk due to forests being cleared, uh, the trees being cut down, or because of climate change. And finally, a lot of the equipment on the International Space Station is out of date, a Russian scientist has said. Uh, the ISS is a joint project between many countries. Russia is one of them. And they say they might pull out as things up there might not be fixable and stuff might start failing and then become unsafe. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Just again, thank you if you managed to come down to our live show, the first ever Science Weekly live show in London last week. Uh, if you didn't make it, or if you really enjoyed it and you want to come again, I don't know when it's happening, but hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll manage to do some more shows, perhaps next year. So just keep your eyes peeled for that. Now, if you've got a question that you want me to answer next week, you can leave it as a review over on Apple Podcasts, uh, on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we're a children's radio station here in the UK. You can listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids website and at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!